thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then once more, uh, welcome to this Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. For those who may be joining us for the first time, my name is Naji, Naji Mawad. I am a lay Catholic with no uh, special formation in theology. I don't have a degree in theology. And by any logical measure, I shouldn't be here teaching scripture. Um... It happened quite surprisingly, because after all, my formation is in computer science. I'm a software architect, and I hold a PhD in computer science, which usually does not prepare you to teach scripture. I looked, in fact, and I couldn't see any C code in scripture. So uh, it kind of happened very uh, suddenly when I met Father Nabil for the first time here in St. Ephraim. I was working then, that was in 1996, I was volunteering, working for Catholic Answers, taking care of all their IT needs. And when Father met me and asked me, where do you work? And instead of saying, I work in IT for Catholic Answers, I said, I work at Catholic Answers, and I'm not going to add, in IT, but he didn't let me finish. He said, you're for, for Catholic answers? You're doing the Bible study. Was just, the moon just crashed over my head. So I thought, just so that I can comply with what Father had asked me, that I would do a couple of studies on the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is a subject that is very dear to my, she's very dear to my heart. And I happen to know quite a bit about her because I had to contend with Protestant over time about Our Lady. So I thought I'd do a couple of those and that will be that. And when we started, it was a monthly Bible study. So we did a couple of studies on Our Lady. And I thought people will go away. And I can go home. They kept on coming. And then it went from being monthly to being weekly. And one thing led to another, and here we are. So... I am saying this because God calls all of us, lay folks, to be immersed in Scripture, to know the Scriptures. Not so that we become theologians, as in, you know, fine theologians studying the deep meaning of every word in Scripture, but practically so that we may be 
able to live according to the truth. And the truth is Jesus Christ. So we study Scripture not just for the love of Scripture, although Scripture is a book we should love and venerate, but we study Scripture for the love of Christ, who is the be-all and end-all of all our life. And that brings us to our topic tonight, the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you were with us last, um, for the last Bible study when we went through Leviticus. And before that, we've covered Exodus. And then before that, we went through the book of Genesis. And I think a very good question you might have is, why are we spending time on these books of the Old Testament? Why aren't we focusing immediately on the New Testament? And it's a good question. It is important for us to understand that very early on, when the church was founded, the very first heresy, meaning deviation from the truth, that the church faced was precisely about the Old Testament. Some folks proposed that now that Christ has come, the Old Testament can be done away with. We no longer need the Old Testament. All that we need are the teachings of Jesus. Very early on. And the church has consistently upheld the Old Testament as being the inspired word of God. What does inspired word of God mean? It means that the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. That's one. But two, equally important, that even the books of the Old Testament apply to our lives today, in one way or another. And this brings us to another important point of this Bible study. We're not studying Scripture just so that we become greater experts in Scripture. We're studying Scripture so that we become saints. Are you all with me? Do you understand why you're here? I guess I'm asking you the question without really asking you, by affirming certain things. But what brought you here tonight? In fact, why don't I just ask you the question? What brought you here tonight? Why are you here? We hear, you want to hear the Word of God, but we hear that every Sunday. Yes. It's important during the week also. That's a very good point. Yes? Help us to become a saint. Help us to become a saint. Thank you. Yes? Deep in our prayer life. Anybody here is here because you're trying to figure out what this scripture is all about? Yes, to know God's plan for our life. Exactly. So let's first, before we get into the study, which I'm going to give you the outline in a minute, affirm something that is very important. Because without that affirmation, this effort, because it's an effort for you to be here sitting listening to me, It's an effort for me to come here. This effort would be meaningless. And it is this. Unless we take heaven very, very seriously, 
God will not take us seriously. Right? We live in a culture today where going to heaven is easy. These days, anybody that dies is immediately in heaven. We canonize everybody on the spot. But now going to Harvard, now that is tough. It is important for us to realize that God expects us to take him seriously. God expects us to take him seriously. That's why we're studying scripture. Because in scripture, he's basically telling us how we should interact with him. What kind of relationship we should have with him. How we, he expects certain things to be done. You see, God isn't just about the what. What must we do? Obey the commandments. Fine. It's also about the how. He is actually, as you shall see, very specific about the how. Not just the what, about the how too. Why? Why is it that God couldn't tell told all of us, every one of us, okay, look, be good, be good, obey the commandments your way, and then we're done. That's it. That's all I want you to do. Just obey the commandments your way. Find your own way to obey the commandments, and then you can make it into heaven. You understand, God never said that. Because if God did say that, we don't have to come to church on Sunday. We're not obligated to come to church on Sunday. We can stay home after the football match and then do our own prayers. Sincerely, from the depth of our heart, and maybe our prayers is better than the prayer of the priest. Why is it that God is insistent about the how? How we should worship, how we should live, how we should treat each other, how we should love. He's specific and insistent. Why do you think? Any takers? Ah, the O word. Obedience. Why is it important in God's eyes that we be obedient? Because God is a taskmaster and he just doesn't want anybody to um, contradict him, right? All right. That, my friends, bring us to the last point I'm going to make in this introduction. Our state. Our current state in this world. Original sin that happened in the garden affects all of us. We are like a bunch of folks on a, an escalator that is going down. That's our nature. If I don't do anything, if I don't pray, notice, if I don't pray, if I don't love my brother, if I don't do anything positive, I don't stay neutral it's not like, oh, I'm just a good, I'm a good guy. I'm paying my taxes. I'm not beating anybody. I'm not doing any harm to anyone. I'm not insulting anyone. Notice the not, right? Our nature pulls us down because of original sin. Pride pulls us down. Love of self drags us down. All of those things are dragging us down. Obedience to God 
is like the training you need when you go to the gym. It increases your capacity to love. No obedience to God, no love. No obedience to God, no love. And you see that in multiple forms. There are those who contend with the church. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to have to come here every Sunday and then go to Mass. I don't have to do that. Just do it my way. Then amongst those who do come every Sunday, you have those who contend with the priest. Right? It's one thing It's one thing not to like what the priest says. It's one thing to think that maybe the priest should do this and that differently. It's another matter altogether to um, disrespect the priest. And then, amongst those who actually respect the priest, there are those who have issues with the liturgy. They will simply not do it the way the liturgy prescribes them to do it. Right? So, for instance, in the Maronite rite, if you're celebrating Mass in the Maronite rite, at the moment of consecration, you have to stand. You don't kneel. That's what the liturgy prescribes. That's what God wants. And the divine liturgy that he gave us, in the Maronite rite, he wants us to stand. Well, guess what? Many people feel more comfortable kneeling. So they kneel. That's a form of disobedience. You see that? Even in the minute things of our lives, that disobedience is nagging at us. God knows that. God knows it's a huge fight for us, and this is why he's interested in the how. Not because he wants to control our lives, not because he's a taskmaster, not because he's hard. That's because he's a loving father, and he knows what is best for us. And in the book of Deuteronomy, that is a very strong topic as you will see as we go through all those laws that have been given through Moses. So, what is this book of Deuteronomy? As you know, in the Pentateuch, the initial five books of Scripture, there's the Genesis, and Genesis tells us about the initial time when Adam and Eve were living in the garden, and then there was the fall. And what happened afterwards? What happened afterwards? And after the... Book of Genesis, the Israelites have settled at the end of the book. They've settled in Egypt. They're comfortable in Goshen. They're living a good, posh life. And have ignored the demands of the Lord that you shall not go and settle in Egypt. That he had told to Abraham. That he had told to Isaac. That he had told to Jacob. So for 400 years, God is silent. Because life is comfortable, you see. They're living in La Jolla. They don't need God. I don't mean to imply that those who today live in La Jolla don't need God. Please. I'm just saying that when we're comfortable, oftentimes we don't need God. Then this Pharaoh comes and makes our life really miserable. They turn to God. And then we move into the book of Exodus, where Moses reluctantly agrees to go down to Egypt. And then under his leadership, the Israelites leave La Jolla for El Centro. Because that's what it was. And in the book of Exodus, they made it plainly clear they're not very happy about that deal. Especially when the Egyptians have been smitten, which means that the real estate cost of the houses in La Jolla have been more than halved. Which means they can go and settle there and be really comfortable. Moses is taking them to El Centro. 
They spent 40 years in that desert. We get Exodus, we get Leviticus, and Numbers, the three books. Leviticus particularly is about the law, both religious and civil. And then we come to Deuteronomy. What is Deuteronomy then? Moses now is with the next generation of Israelites at the river Jordan. They're going to cross. He's not. And this is his reflection on the laws and on all the events that had happened in the past 40 years. It is Moses' commentary on the laws, if you want. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And you can see that this book is split really into three major narratives. So there, there is initially a first narrative that happens uh, in the introduction of the book, which is very short. Essentially, it goes from chapter 1 to chapter 4, in which Moses is recounting the events that have taken place. I'm just scrolling to go to this um, entire structure that I would like to share with you. Then comes the bulk of the book, which is the second discourse. That takes us from chapter... um, Yeah, chapter about 5 to chapter 26. There, Moses is giving the Israelites additional laws that they must live by. And I'll have to say more about that, obviously, as we go through the study. And then the last part of the book of Deuteronomy is the third discourse in which Moses reminds the Israelites of their duties before God and the consequences both good or bad, that would befell them if they don't, or if they do, take God's admonition seriously. That's, in a nutshell, the structure of the book. Let's get into a little bit more details. Okay. Here we go. So, as I said, there is a prologue, which is the first discourse, and that takes us from chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 43. And then following this, you, end, you enter into the second discourse, which is chapter 4, verses 44, all the way through chapter 28. That's the bulk of the book. And in it, there is a preamble to the laws given in Moab. Those were the laws that were given before that point in time where Moses is speaking to the Israelites. Those are the laws that we find in Leviticus. And then following that, there is an expounding of Moses on those laws. And then there is the conclusion. Like I said, which runs through chapter 28. Chapter 28 is, um, together with chapter 26 of the book of Leviticus, is these two chapters are probably the hardest chapters in the Old Testament to read. Because of all the curses. And then the third discourse is an epilogue in which we find the poem of Moses. And we're going to spend a little time on that because it's very interesting. It's a prophetic poem that Moses wrote at the end of his life. Okay.
What are therefore the main themes of Deuteronomy? What I just gave you here is a very you know, simple outline, but something you can, you, you can remember. So, at this point, what we want to remember is that, number one, Deuteronomy is Moses' commentary on the law that is given. And then number two, it is essentially broken into three parts. There are three discourse is given. The first one, reminding the Israelites about what had happened up to this point. The second one, detailing what the, what the, the law is and Moses' commentary on it. And the third one, and the final one, is a poem in which Moses is prophesying what is going to happen to Israel in the future. And most of, that, most of the, the Mosaic discourse has application to our own lives. Not directly, for instance, Moses will tell them there are certain things you can eat, certain things you cannot eat. Well, today we don't have the same type of dietary limitation as they did in the past. But that idea... The principle behind that law, which is that you and I should be controlling what we eat for God's love, that stands. So you will see that from that discord, there's a lot of um, conclusion we can draw for our own life. And this is why this book is still very valid for us to read today. With the proper lens. With the proper lens. All right. There are about 11 major themes in the book of Deuteronomy. And tonight I'm just going to run through them very briefly to give you the lay of the land. And we're going to come back and talk about those as we go through the entire book. And again, I encourage you as much as possible, if you can, to take notes. Because this study is not, um, while this is not highbrow theology, it is not an ABC in Scripture either. So taking notes helps you remember salient points. And as you review those notes, you will um, make the knowledge that you've captured a little bit more permanent to help, you, to, help, to help you restructure your life if it's necessary according to God's plan for you. All right, the first point that Moses makes in the book of Deuteronomy is monotheism. Monotheism, mono, one, theism, theo, one, one God. So the first affirmation that is made in the book of Deuteronomy and shouldn't surprise us is that God is one. God is one. What does it mean to say God is one, though, for us today? What does it mean to say God is one? How do you understand that expression, God is one? Anyone? Pardon? No other gods. Very good. Absolutely. But you notice, as long as we stay in a theological realm, there's one God, no other gods, we're all comfortable. Let's bring it to the moral realm. And there, we start to be a little bit less comfortable. So theologically, we're saying there's one God. Anybody has an issue with that? If you do, raise your hand. Okay, we're all on the same page. There's one God. Has your life changed because you said there is one God? Let me ask you this other question. How would your life change if you were to say there are many gods? What would you do differently? Pardon? Pick and choose. Pick and choose. 
We don't know which law to obey. Yes. Confused. Chaos. Okay. Cover all the bases. Cover all the bases. Yeah, all of them, right? Make sure you cover every single one of them because you just don't, you don't know, right? Yes. Okay, who am I going to love? Who are you going to love? Yes. It's like I have a lot of boyfriends. Okay, very good. Those are all very good points. So now, let's bring it to something that's a little bit closer to home. We're all saying there is only one God, yes? All right. Do we also agree that we must make that statement, not just in words, but in deeds? Yes? Because you all know that if I say to somebody, I love you, and I slap him in the face every time I say, I love you, there is a problem. Right? What I'm saying, what I'm doing is not congruent, right? It's not in agreement. Something is wrong. Okay, so what does it mean when we say there is one God today? Today in our life? This day? What did, the, what did that mean to you today when you said there is only one God? Yes? Okay. I am not going to put anything else before God. Anybody disagrees with that statement? Well, I do. Not in principle. I, I completely agree with Rich. In principle. But is my life congruent with that statement? No. No. I'm hungry. Lunch is late. I become crabby. How is that connected to there's one God? Is there a connection? Yeah, there is. Okay, I'm coming before God. How am I coming before God? Because after if I'm hungry and I'm becoming crabby, isn't that normal? I mean, I'm, I'm hungry. See, that's where it becomes intense. It's not in the big things. It's not in the big principles. It's in the small ones. In the ones that, by which our lives is going to be measured. If I say there is one God, remember, that doesn't mean just numerically there is no other one. This is not a mathematical principle. I'm also saying this God is the true God, and I'm, I'm not it, Right? I'm saying all those things. I had a friend who, in his youth, when you met him, and you asked him, do you believe in God? He typically answered, yes, and you're talking to him. He no longer does that today. Because he reached the age of reason. He's 50 years old. But we're saying there is one God. He's the true God. I'm not it. If God willed for me to suffer a little hunger today, when I became crabby, what did I do? I just rebelled. Yeah, it's a mini rebellion, right? We're talking about small things here. It's a mini rebellion. But it's a rebellion. I just told God, you're not the one God. You're not the true God. I know better. You get that? 
Okay, it is in those things that our life is measured. In those simple things. And they're so important. So monotheism isn't just a theological affirmation. It is also a moral affirmation. Right? That's how we have to read it. Now, in the case of Deuteronomy, it is important to notice that Moses enjoins the Israelites to worship the true God. But he does not condemn the other nations for not worshiping the true God. The book of Deuteronomy is not about imposing monotheism on everyone at that point in time. It is only for Israel. That doesn't mean it's a relativistic truth. That does not mean the truth is relative. Oh, well, to me there is one God, but to these other people, it's another reality and we're all going to be happy together. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that God reveals the truth to whom He wishes to reveal it. Monotheism revealed to each one of us is a grace of God. But we should not presume on God to think that that same grace is going to be revealed to my brother or my sister or my cousin simply because I suffer. Do you understand that? We all have folks who are either only halfway in the church or not in a church or maybe not even a Christian. We may have friends who are Muslim or of other religion, or atheists. And sometimes we care for them, and we suffer. But that should not, we should not confuse our pain with God's plan. That monotheism, the truth about God, is a gift that God gives to whomever He wishes, when He wishes. And then we are His instruments. His instruments. Not His manager. And again, you heard me bring this to you multiple times. I'll do it one more time because it is very arresting. Imagine, if you will, that you're in heaven. And imagine that there is a person whom you love very, very dearly who is in hell. How will you be happy in heaven? You see how we have other plans about who is God? You understand my question, don't you? Yeah. You and I need to understand. Monotheism means there is one God and I'm not it. That bit we need to repeat just as much as the other one. I'm not God. If I'm not God, I don't know everything. I can't decide everything. And I'm a sinful man. That's what it means. Those two realities go hand in hand. The affirmation of God's monotheism is also an affirmation of my limitations and my sinfulness and of my need of being saved which I cannot affect on my own. I need God for that. 
So following that first principle of monotheism is the second one we talked about, which is loyalty to God. Deuteronomy is calling Israel to an ardent and exclusive loyalty to God, which is expressed in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And our Lord Jesus Christ added, with all your mind, your intellect. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And if anything, every single one of us should recognize that we fall short from that ardent love. And I'll show it to you very, very easily. Very easily. I used this example many times in the past. If I were to tell you that next Sunday, right here in the church, in front of the altar, there's going to be a pile of $10 million. I used to use a million, but a million is no longer enough. I have to upgrade now. Inflation, you know. $10 million, and it's first come, first serve. How many of us, how many of us you think will be late to Mass? Do you see that? God knows that. It's not all our willed fault. I don't want you to think that I'm bringing this up to tell you and me that this is all our fault. Because it isn't. Part of our nature is broken. Christ knew that. The flesh is weak. That's what he meant. We must be patient with one another. We must be compassionate towards the others. Because the flesh is weak. It's like you're asking a bunch of guys who are sitting in a wheelchair to run the 100 meters. Not going to be very successful now, is it? Because we can't. We can't run the 100 meters. We're all paralyzed. Christ can. He can get us up. He can help us run. On our own, we can't. So, at the very least, at the very least, since we know that we're not able to love God this way, we should show compassion towards our brothers and sisters who also are not able to love God this way. What does that mean? It means if somebody owes you something, if somebody said a word to you that was not a right word, if someone wasn't kind to you, treat him with charity. Because we're all paralyzed. That's what it means. Right? So that is important. This loyalty to the Lord, since we all know we cannot live up to this call on our own, we're all trying to love our, the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind. We're trying. We're trying. And sometimes that's all we've got. We can tell him, I tried. And sometimes that's enough. But since we know we're all trying, let us be compassionate towards others who are also trying. The third important point is that this concept of the Lord, the concept of God, is as follows. The Lord is a just and caring God, giver of just laws. Chapter 4, verse 8. 
who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. 10, 18. God is just, caring, and he gives just laws. And that is a problem for all of us now, isn't it? How many of us were confronted with evil? How many of us look at what is happening out there? Whether in grand scale, like what happens in the Middle East, elsewhere in the world, or in small scale, a child being abducted, or some evil that happens. How many of us then look at this and say, how could God allow this to happen? How could God be a just God if He allows evil in the world? It's a temptation. It's a temptation. Whenever this thought hits your head, understand it's a temptation. Because a thousand difficulties, a thousand difficulties in your faith do not amount to one doubt. The fact that I'm having difficulties with my faith does not mean that it gives me the right to doubt. The fact that perhaps I am having difficulties with my wife does not give me the right to doubt her love for me. Evil is the lack of good. Evil is not a thing. It is the absence of something which is good. God permits evil in the world because God loves us. How does that work? God permits evil in the world because God loves us. Well, think about the alternative. Let's say God did not, does not permit evil in the world. What is the alternative? Robots, no free will. We don't like that, right? No, we don't like robots, no free will. So let's say he allows free will, but he doesn't permit evil. What then? What would happen to all of us? Because you see, when we speak of evil, it's always the other. Right? We never ask, well, how come God allows me to do this evil that I just did right now? And continue to live. It's always the other evil, right? The one I consider evil. The one that shocks me. I judge it evil and unacceptable. And then I say, how do you allow that to happen? Standing there, being sinful. We just said, we're not always able to love God the way we should, right? We just said, we have our own mini-gods. We just said, we do all these evil things every day. But that doesn't count. Of course God allows it, because it's me. I'm his manager. You see that? You see the hypocrisy in this thinking process? Something shocks us. Something scandalizes us. Then we are, how could God allow this? But my little imperfection that I do every day, for years, of course God has to put up with them. Because they don't shock me, it shouldn't shock him, right? Here's the alternatives, my friends. If God did not allow evil... Every single one of us, every single one of us would be in hell. That's the alternative. Yeah? So why does he allow evil? Because he is merciful. Because he wills for all of us to repent. Because he's patient. 
Because He cares for us. And He waits for His children to come back. If God, so if somebody asks you, how can you believe in God? If God is loving, how could He allow evil? The answer is, because He loves you too much and He doesn't want to see you in hell for all the evil you committed. That's how you answer that one. It'll cause a short circuit and get them to think a little bit before they come back to you. Do you understand what I said, by the way? Is that making sense to you? Yeah? All right. Now, God is faithful. He keeps his commitments. And that one is a hard one. That is a tough one for all of us. He is faithful. He keeps his commitments. Now, commitments. God does two things. We're going to see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Those of you who've been with this Bible study for some time, you know that now hopefully by heart. There are two things that God does. He blesses us, yes, and He curses us. Two things. Most often these days, all you hear is the blessing. Right? Most often these days, this culture is functioning as if, if I'm trying to educate my son, all I have to tell him is the good he's doing. And never say anything about his imperfections to correct him, ever. And hope for the best. Yeah. God is not like that. He keeps his commitments. We'll have more to say, and, you, and hopefully you will begin to understand how we have to see the woes in the world covenantally. And then how we make sense of the events of the world. Because the events in the world, whether in Syria, in the Middle East, here in the United States, and everywhere else, make sense covenantally. Through the actions of God through in history. He is a loving God. And that imagery that is used in Deuteronomy is that of a father loving his child or the marital love. So this relationship isn't um, legalistic. It's not that God coldly sets a set of rules and says to us, obey those rules, and if you do that, I'll give you a grade. And you get a B plus, you can make it to heaven. It's a loving relationship. So the importance of that notion is that this is the life of the law. This is what Jesus will tell the Pharisees. You received the law, and what you decided to do with it is an exercise in competition. You decided to make a to-do list and check it. And you thought if you did that, makes you perfect, makes you righteous. No. The law is there to help you understand who God is. But if, we, we, if you don't enter into this relationship with God, it's of no use. You would be like a man, let's say, who met this young woman and invites her to lunch. And when they are at lunch, she's sitting in front of him and he is going through his to-do. She's a checklist entry that he had completed. Oftentimes, we tend to treat God that way. I went to Mass. Check. I brought my kids to First Communion. Check. That's not what God wants. My friends, you can go to Sunday Masses week after week. You can say your rosaries 
every day, and you could end up in hell. Because if you don't understand that all of these are means for you to become holy, what is holy? A lover of God. That's what it means. To become holy, then it's of no use. Yeah? So we talked briefly about the covenant, and we're going to talk more. Essentially, covenant says, I am the strong party. This is God talking to us. You're the weak ones. I'll set rules for you, and if you obey those rules, I'll bless you. And I'll tell you how, specifically. And if you don't obey my rules, I'll curse you. And I'll tell you how, specifically. And since I'm just, and I am faithful, you better bet that these blessings and these curses will be applied. And they have applied and continue to do so. In history and in our, in our own lives. All right. And we'll, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit more about that. I've covered that extensively in other Bible studies. But it's an important point to, to reiterate. Again, I can't emphasize enough how in the book of Deuteronomy, love is central to the relationship between Israel and God. Love is central. And Jesus is going to build on that in the Gospels. When he says, love of God, love of neighbor. Those two sum up the entire law. Because there isn't one without the other. Can't tell me I love God, but I hate my neighbor. Love of neighbor imply that you're willing to let go of past hurts. You're willing to let go of past hurts. It doesn't mean emotionally you're exuberant. It means in your will, you ask God to forgive them. You say to God, I ask you, Lord, to forgive them and not to hold this against them. Like St. Stephen did, the first deacon. Do not hold this against them. Like Christ did on the cross. That's how you show that you love God. And and it's not that easy. It is not that easy. It's not that easy. Especially when the hurt is big. Especially when the hurt is deep. Right? So what would convict us? What would cause us to do that? It is the Meditation before the cross. Because the more we understand how much Christ suffered for us, the more we are convinced that we ought to suffer a little bit for those who persecute us. If you can't in your heart let go of these hurts, what are you doing in church? It requires that you let go of it out of the love of Christ. That's what it means to say, there's one God, He's God, I'm not God. I'm a sinful man, have mercy on me, just as I'm having mercy on my brother. Forgiving my sins, just as I'm forgiving those against, who sinned against me. All those things sums up the same thing. Love God, therefore love your neighbor. And Deuteronomy is going to insist on that, and we're going to see how. 
The, la the next point which is important to make is the role of Israel. Israel owes her very existence to God who created her, redeemed her from Egypt, guided her safely through the wilderness. Um, God fought Israel's war and gave Israel her land. Now, I, I need to say a couple words about Israel because it's a, in this modern time, it's a little bit confusing, at least for those of you who may be from the Middle East. Because there is a confusion of terms between the modern state of Israel and between Israel in the scriptures. We all know that Israel was the chosen people of God. Why did God choose Israel? For a very simple reason. And that's something we've studied extensively in the book of Genesis. If you follow the genealogy of Genesis, you'll discover that Abraham comes from the lineage of the righteous firstborn. The Hebrews, the Hebrews in um, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews are all the children of Eber. And Eber is six generation before Abraham. So, in the scripture, in the study of scriptures, the Arabs are all Hebrews. Because they go back to Eber through Ishmael. Right? So, there is this lineage that goes all the way back to Adam. Hmm? And runs through Abraham, then Jacob, then Isaac, then Jacob. And Jacob is Israel. So effectively, God always wanted the firstborn, the righteous firstborn, which is not necessarily the physical, the biological firstborn. There's differences between these two. To be the brother who is going to lead his brothers back home. That's the role of the firstborn. And Israel, therefore, was the firstborn. And that's why God went to his firstborn, called him back to himself, and gave him that mission. So that when the temple was built in Jerusalem, all nations will come and worship in the temple. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that one day Gentiles will be Levites. Which is incredible. Because the Levites, obviously, priests, are only from the tribe of Levi. Gentiles will join them. That's in the book of Isaiah. So, when we say that Israel was called by God, Israel is the firstborn of God, understood in those terms, we follow the lineage all the way until we come to Christ. Christ is the firstborn of God, in more than one way. Right? Christ is the Son of God. He is the firstborn among the children of Adam to be uh, to essentially open up the gates of heaven for all of us. He's the one that saved us, and he's the one who leads us. Therefore, who is Israel today? Pardon? Yes, the church is Israel today. All right? Having said that, what do we make of the state of Israel? The state of Israel is a political entity. You may be in agreement with what they do. You may be in disagreement with what they do politically, like you would any other country. Yes? But there are two things that you should be very careful about. The first one, 
hatred of anyone is not from God. You understand that? Hatred of anyone is not from God. But particularly the hatred of the Jews is demonic. If there is hatred toward the Jews in your heart, it's something that you must purify. And that happens through confession, by confessing it, and by, by praying the rosary and the mass. You know why it is demonic? Why the, de- the devil wants you to hate the Jews? You know why? Because Christ came from them, absolutely. But there's also a second reason. Because when you hate the Jews, you're cutting yourself off from the one person who can help you. And who's Jewish? Mary. Never forget that. She's Jewish. She never said, I'm not Jewish anymore. You understand? It's a weapon he uses against you to break you away from our Lord, St. Joseph, our Lady, and most, if not all, of the apostles. You, you understand that? He breaks you away from the church by making you hate the Jews. So hatred of anyone is not from God, but in particular, the hatred of the Jews. Now, please understand what I'm saying. That does not mean, and I'm standing in front of you and I'm saying, I agree with every decision the government of Israel today is making. Those are two completely different things. Yes? All right, thank you. The second thing I'd like to point out to you, and it is this. After 2,000 years of exile, the fact that God has reassembled the Jews in Israel is definitely significant. Remember that one of the signs before the end of the world and the coming of Jesus is the conversion of the Jews. That's one of the signs that St. Paul speaks of. If their separation from the tree is nothing more than your salvation, what would be their, their grafting back into that tree, if not the coming of our Lord? All right. So there is definitely significance there. And it's something we need to contemplate and think about. And again, it does not mean, please, don't misconstrue anything I'm saying to be a political statement, one way or the other. I'm not doing politics here. I just wanted to warn you about any tendency to hate the Jews. All right. That's enough said. So, it is important to also understand, and in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses makes it very clear that the election of Israel is not chauvinistic. It's not, hey, you guys are better than these guys, I'm going to pick you. Because you don't smell as, as, as bad as the Egyptians. Nothing to do with it. In fact, Moses is very clear. He tells them that your election by God was not a sign of merit. God did not elect Israel based on that merit. He elected Israel based on their ancestors. Based on Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and, and um, Jacob and Joseph, and the promise, the covenant that God made. And since he's faithful, he's going to accomplish it. All right. Now, two more points, briefly. Israel and the nations is another important topic. Israel is required to worship the true God. 
other nations worship his subordinates or insubstantial idols. Like I said earlier, Deuteronomy does not consider it sinful for these other nations to worship those objects, but it does consider the Canaanites' religion sinful because of one thing. Can you tell me what it is? What was the thing that the Canaanites were doing that was an abomination in God's eyes? No. Worship of idols was... Don't get me wrong. It's not a good thing. But there was one thing that they were doing in particular. I'll give it to you in modern terms. Abortion. The Canaanites, at least, were a little bit more realistic about it. They didn't discuss baby in the womb, baby outside the womb. And they understood what they were doing. They were sacrificing their children to demons for the usual. Right? Money and power. Somebody said that um, the words of consecration, I think it might have been Scott Hahn who brought this up, the, board, the words of consecration are, the Lord said, this is my body, this is my body, right? Broken, he takes, he breaks, right? For you, so that you may have life, right? When a woman goes and have an abortion, she's saying to the baby, this is your body, this is your body, broken, so that I may have life the way I want. It's an inversion of the Eucharist. You see that? There's a definite demonic aspect to it. Not to say that these these women, God have mercy on their souls, when they go and do that, have the intent of performing a demonic act. But the objective side of it is a denial of the Eucharist. And the two go hand in hand, by the way. The two go hand in hand. We cannot win the pro-life battle if we don't win the pro-Eucharistic battle. That's the real battle to win. That's the real battle to win. But that's what the Canaanites were doing. That was an abomination. That was not acceptable to God. Because guess what? A baby in Scripture. I told you there are blessings and curses, right? Never in all of Scripture would you find a passage where God says to somebody, okay, because you disobeyed me, I'm sending you triplets. God never, ever curses somebody with children. Ever. It's always a blessing. Children are always a blessing. They may not look like it. They may not smell like it. We had a good friend of ours who told us one day, God makes babies cute so they can survive. Right? But they're a blessing. So, Israel is called to be friendly with other nations. It expects foreigners to visit and trade with Israel. That's, and it permits most, including escaped slaves, to settle in Israel, marry Israelites, and eventually to join the popular assembly. We'll find that in chapter 21, verse 10 through 14, and chapter 23, verse 27. So you notice that love of neighbor 
was very much in God's plan. And it didn't only mean my brother. So when Jesus spoke to them and gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was already inscribed in the book of Deuteronomy. Because they were supposed to have friendly relations with non-Israelites. And treat them well. The next important point is the land. Why did God give Israel a land? Now, I'm going to make two points here for all of you to keep in mind. This is very important. When God spoke to Abraham, he made two promises. There was two covenants that God established with Abraham. Not one, two. The first one is when he basically tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this piece of land that essentially is running from the uh, Arabian Gulf all the way to the Euphrates. And all the way to the border of Turkey and Syria today. And to the sea. It's huge. Did he give him this land? Yeah, he did. To who? Ishmael. Ishmael is the one who received this land. And Ishmael, just like Jacob, had 10 or 12 boys. He had his own dynasty. What did Ishmael get? The good of this world. Because God is just. What did Jacob get? Comparatively speaking, a small piece of land. I mean, think about it this way. Why didn't God tell Israel, since Israel is his firstborn, look, I'm going to give you the whole world. You govern it. And tell everybody else how they're supposed to live. Why only this little piece of land? Because the purpose of the land is for worship. The purpose of the land is for worship. It's the spiritual good that God gave Israel. His own self. His presence in their midst. I told you this before, but in uh, in the uh, um, dialogue, the conversation between our Lord Jesus and Saint Faustina, at one point, our Lord asked Saint Faustina, "Daughter, would you like me to create a whole universe just for you?" See, Jesus believes in parallel universes. He's going to create a whole universe just for her. And you understand, he's not asking, he's not quipping here, he's not being uh, funny. He meant every word he said. He was ready to create a whole new universe. Not a couple of planets or galaxies. A whole another universe just for St. Faustina. And St. Faustina said, Lord, what would I do with the whole universe when I have you? And I went, couldn't you have said yes? (laughs) The point is, when at night, before you go to bed, look at your list of to-dos. Look at the things that you want. Go through them and simply ask yourself this question. Am I happy even if I don't have those things because I have God? Am I content if I don't have these things because I have God? Or am I anxious 
Or am I holding on to these wounds and these, these uh, uh, demands for justice? That's the purpose of the land. That's the purpose of our homes. It's the same thing. Not just the church. Our homes are given to us by God for one purpose. So we can invite Him in. So we can pray. And obviously, have a family life and grow our kids and all the other things that we need materially. But those derive from these. So, the land... Therefore, it is the place where God's laws are to be carried out and where a society pursuing justice and righteousness and living in harmony with God can be established. That's what the land was given for. It wasn't for material good. It wasn't for, you know, um, a, um, for purposes of power or, or uh, building kingdoms like the other nations. It was really so that Israel could have a place to worship. All right. Quickly, the law, obviously, very important. We're going to talk more about that. The law that is given to Israel. That's another really important um, element of Deuteronomy, as well as the centralization of sacrificial worship. You can only worship in Jerusalem, at the, at, um, in God's temple, and nowhere else. And that's part of being a family, by the way. It's part of being a family. You draw everybody to one place to sit together and have a meal. Right? I hope in your families you do that with your children. I hope you do an effort to draw your friends over so you can sit down and have a meal. This is why we still do it at our church. We sit down we have a meal because we are one family. We are one family. So these are important to remember that the centralization of worship has two purposes. We come together to worship God because God is one, but also we come together because we are his family. We're all together his children. And it is that element that is very important for the central worship of Israel. So, the book of Deuteronomy is this reflection that Moses gave Israel before they crossed over. It is a book that centers on the idea that God is one, God is right, God is just, God loves us. We are to love God. We ought to worship Him properly. And that means also we ought to treat our brothers and sisters as well as the, the foreigner the right way. In a nutshell, it's a, we call it a law, not just because there are you know, 263 of the 662 laws in Judaism written in the book of Deuteronomy. We also call it a law because when you look at it in, in total, you understand the purpose of Moses. He's like a founder of a monastic life. He's like the, the, the man who understood that in order to worship God, all these elements have to come together. Hence, our study of the book of Deuteronomy has this purpose. How do we orient our lives so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth? What can we learn from the wisdom of Moses that applies today in our lives and help us and orient us and prepare us for the coming of our Lord in Christmas? And then beyond that, introduce us or help us enter into the Gospels. So I'll stop here. We'll 
we'll, uh, we'll end with a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions. Thank you. Yes. Did Moses make it to heaven? Um, let's see. Can, so th- this is a good question. Did Moses make it to heaven? This is a very good question. This is an easy one for me. I have the authority of scripture on this one. Remember when Jesus was transfigured? Who appeared to him? Moses and Elijah. And they were conversing with him. So we're not just apparition to sort of teach Peter and James and and John something. There were actual real people who appeared. Therefore, yes, he did make it to heaven. Yes. Very good question. That's why I said in in the Maronite rite... The question was about kneeling and disobedient, being disobedient to God. In the Maronite rite, as is the case in many, if not most, Eastern rites, uh, we express our adoration of God by bowing, not by kneeling. That's the form that the liturgy asks us to use. Therefore, if we're truly obedient to God, we ought to follow that form. In the Latin rite, we show our, we express our adoration, worship of God by kneeling. Therefore, we must kneel. All right? Yes. Yes. So I didn't say that Israel was given to Ishmael. I said that there was a big part of land, which is not Israel, that was given to Ishmael. That's what I said. All right? In fact, when Hagar... Ishmael's mother ran away and she was in the desert and she thought her son is going to die. The angel appeared to her and told her that's what's going to happen. That God will bless her son with material goods. And he was blessed with material goods. And with the land. Make sense? And this is obviously material. It doesn't mean it is... When God gives the land to someone, even to Israel, it doesn't mean that it's in perpetuity no matter what. It means that as long as you're obedient to, you obey my laws, I will bless you. If you don't, you will lose it. Make sense? Okay. Yes, very good question. The question is, whenever we hear in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy something where God is calling Israel to do something... Here, Israel, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart. How much of that can we then immediately say, well, then, therefore, the church should do that? I'd say almost all of it because of the words of our Lord. Amen, amen. I say to you, I did not come to reject the law, but to fulfill it. Not a yoda of the law will be uh, taken away, right? So, no, it, the church is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy. Therefore, it is... Our role, as we go through this book, to say, all right, this is what they were asked to do. For instance, you, when you come, you worship, you do these things. Well, obviously, we come to the church, we're not bringing animals with us to sacrifice. That part we let go of. But we look behind it to the intent. And we see that if God is being very careful about the minutiae of what you're supposed to do, it means that it really matters to him how we worship. So, therefore, how we dress, how we sit, how we stand. Where we look, all of that matters to God. Because if it didn't, then God would be unjust. Why ask those poor Israelites all these things and sort of give us a a pass? How, How is he being equitable and just? Therefore, we use that to kind of make us think about, okay, well, if he's so particular about how we how they were supposed to worship back then, what would he think? 
if instead of cows in an empty room with a box containing some tablets, we are before His Majesty. The Holy Trinity is present. How are, how, how are we to conduct ourselves then? Make sense? Yes. Um, the question is, how important are names? And what do we think about people who give their children names which, are, which when read backward mean a word, like for instance, heaven? Well, what I can tell you is traditionally in the Catholic Church, we give our children names of saints. Because it's a way to inscribe the holy into our daily lives. Right? By giving them the name of a saint, they have a patron saint. That helps our children remember who they belong to. And it helps all of us keep in mind that we're not alone, but we have a bigger family. A good part of it is in heaven. And they are, re- they are ready and willing to help us. So all these things play a role. And also, it's a way to de- declaring to the world that I'm a witness of Christ because I chose a Christian name. All these things are, are important in our tradition, and I think they're valid and we should keep them. So, um, these things are sort of important. So, in, in some tradition, like for instance, even in the Lebanese tradition, my daughter is named Hanan. So, there isn't a, you would think there isn't directly a saint with that name, but in fact, this is the same name as Anne, who is the mother of Our Lady, right? So, it's important to give our children names which remind them of their identity, which proclaim to the world who we are, and which help them think, I have a friend in heaven I can always count on. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Right. Very good question. It's really cultural, I think. It's very something that is typical of the... I don't know if it's Spanish. I don't know about Spain, if they also name their children Jesus, but it is definitely something typical of the Mexican culture and in their culture I think it makes sense in others it may not make you know just as much because we tend to say this is a name that is very much revered and we keep it apart not like unlike any other name so for instance if you read the names of all the popes you will see that there is no Peter the second there isn't a pope who took the name Peter only one Yes, so I think what is really important is, again, if the choice of the name is reminding the child and us about our identity, who do we belong to, proclaiming something, standing as a witness, and reminding us we are not alone, I think the name is serving its purpose. Then there are cultural, um, uh, if you will, um, colors that are applied to these principles, and that's fine. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.